Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 12, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Uh, I wanted to have my sister, Ruthie Bloom, who has been on this podcast before, on today. She lives in Tel Aviv. Uh, she she is a veteran uh, American-Israeli journalist. She's lived in Israel for more than 40 years. Um, she couldn't join us, but I thought maybe what I would do is read you guys some of the things she was sending me in real time yesterday on WhatsApp. She lives in an apartment in Tel Aviv, and her version of a bomb shelter is her stairwell right outside her apartment because largely what you're doing when you go into a bomb shelter under these circumstances is avoiding the windows in case a bomb blows the glass out of the windows. So here's what she uh, says. Siren in Tel Aviv, I'm in my staircase. Boom. Another boom, like thunder. Third boom. Siren still wailing. Fourth boom. Fifth and sixth. Several close ones, window shaking. Stop now. And I said, uh, so that was like 30 seconds. I, I, I said, when do you go back in? Is there an all clear? Yes, I'm back in. Are you okay? I said, some were intercepted, meaning by Iron Dome, the missile defense system in Israel. Yes. Emotionally, are you okay? And then she said, more sirens. This is literally 10 seconds after uh, she said she was in. I'm back in the staircase. Oh, I'm fine. Uh, Boaz, that's her son who lives with her. He's not home, she reported. Uh, said he's okay. Loud boom. Another. Siren stopped again. I've been through this before, but this felt really close, and I can't go out to look. Also, reporters never say where exactly the hits are so as not to give Hamas an idea of how to aim the rockets better. More sirens. Oi. Booms. Many. Could be Iron Dome. Impossible to tell. News says 50 rockets were launched into Tel Aviv. 100 if you count the greater Tel Aviv area. I might sleep in the living room tonight, which is closer to the door. Ha. Ugh. More sirens. A bus in Holon was hit. Three people wounded, including a five-year-old. Now, Avital, that's her daughter who lives on a, on a Moshav, said there are sirens in her area. It's just nonstop. Uh, and I said, will alone get called up, do you think? me? he's a reservist uh, in the in the IDF. Uh, and my sister Naomi said, and or Tzvika. Tzvika is my, my niece Avital's husband. No, so far they haven't been called up, but the army is preparing for a ground scenario just in case, which probably won't happen. Ben-Gurion Airport was targeted. All flights suspended today. Oh my God, I said. Yeah, this is no joke, she said. Um, Iron Dome intercepted the rockets over the airport. Um, so that was between 150 and 240 yesterday. Um, at, uh, that at us time, uh, cause this happened at night, like, you know, eight, eight 30, uh, Israeli time. Uh, then she reports, meanwhile, Arabs in Lod, that's the town next to the, uh, to the airport, to Ben Gurion Airport, set three synagogues and dozens of cars on fire. Mayor is calling it Kristallnacht. He's begging the government to send in the army. Uh, Arabs are randomly attacking Jewish homes and shops and everything. Uh, they're rioting in Akko and Haifa and in the Negev. Hamas has riled up Israel's Arabs. Jews being evacuated from Lod by police. Um, reports of East Jerusalem Arabs arriving to help fellow Arabs. Um, and then 
I at uh, at eight oh three when I saw that sirens had gone off in Tel Aviv again, I typed out "Ruthie, you okay?" This is a family group chat. My sister and we said she's probably asleep, and then she announces, "No, just got back in the staircase and the stairwell." Boaz woke me up. Uh, I see that Avital's Moshav is also getting it, and then she sent a picture of Avital and her and her son-in-law Svika and their four-month-old baby. Uh, Noga, uh, Noga grinning and smiling in the bomb shelter at 3 a.m. Um, here we go again, uh, she announced. And Naomi, kids, I hope you're wearing your mask. Uh, she says, that's basically where we were. Uh, an 84-year-old man had a heart attack trying to run to a bomb shelter. A few people have been killed. And then I, I asked her this morning if she was okay, and she said, tired but working. No rockets in Tel Aviv at the moment. They like to wait until nightfall, I guess. So this was our exchange during the bombardment of, of, of Tel Aviv uh, yesterday. Um, thoughts? <laughs> Well, hearing that, it, it makes me even more enraged to see the constant equivocation on the part of media reports in the West about what's going on in the Middle East. So you see, oh, let's all just calm down. Let's both sides need to calm down. Well, actually, one side needs to stop having terrorists launch rockets into the other side. That's basically how things would calm down. And, it, and it's absolutely it's it's really, really disheartening to me to see the narrative that is constantly being constructed in the media where it's like, well, we're just reporting the facts. Actually, they're not reporting the facts. They're, they continue to frame this story as if you have two equivalent situations when Israel is defending itself. And even in the process of defending itself from an attack by terrorists, still gives warnings to civilians and still does everything possible to avoid civilian casualties. And the entire mission of Hamas and all these rockets raining down on Israel is to kill innocent people. It's very funny that you mentioned the both sides thing, because I just hit delete on the introductory two paragraphs of a post I'm writing about this that was all about the efforts to enforce inconsistency and moral ambiguity on people with this whole nonsense both sidesism thing. The progressive left is being perfectly consistent when they ignore the fact that Palestinian rioting began in anticipation of a legal result, not an actual legal result. They were, didn't wait for the legal result. They erupted in violence as a result of proceedings. Right. This is, is, which, this, is which, the, it, this is the case of the right. of the of the twenty seven homes in the neighborhood that 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 is called in Arabic uh, Sheikh, Sheikh Jarrah, which is which, which I, I I discussed on Monday, and I don't want to go into the whole thing that basically was owned from eighteen seventy six onward in legal title by the Jewish community in Israel and then East Jerusalem was seized by the Jordanians in nineteen forty eight held by them uh my point is it doesn't yes. matter it's not for course, us yeah. to decide these issues. These were before a court, and the rule of law was being executed by those who are capable and competent and competent and have the charge of adjudicating these issues and the adjudication itself was not allowed to proceed. Those proceedings were suspended as a result of this violence being executed from inside a religious site. Right. Police responded to violence being executed from inside a religious site. And then Hamas and its Iranian sponsors took the opportunity to rain rockets down on civilian populations. If you see a moral equivalence there, you're blinkered 
and well, corrupt. Right. Well, even more important, uh, the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood problem is a pretext. It was a pretext of a pretext. The actual political reality is the Palestinian Authority, which governs the West Bank, canceled elections because Hamas was going to win and then did what they do when they are in need of a confrontation with Israel to show their teeth, uh, which is uh, gin up a controversy on the Temple Mount, uh, which, as I said the other day, is the third holiest site in Islam and the first holiest site in Judaism, um, and, uh, and, 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 and provoked a confrontation with uh, with uh, Jews and with Israeli authorities. And then on Monday, because this stuff was not ending, Israeli authorities then attempted to stage a kind of, um, uh, you know, action to sort of clear out the pavilion around the Temple Mount, which then people started saying, well, the Israelis provoked the rockets because they stormed the Temple Mount. Now let us make this very clear. Israel does not have dominion. Israel has technical dominion over the Temple Mount because it is part of Jerusalem, which has been annexed by Israel, which was part of Israel until Jordan seized Israel in the Six-Day War. But it has ceded control over the Temple Mount to a Jordanian authority called the Waqaf, which has limited Jewish access to the Temple Mount. And Israeli authorities enforce block Jews from going to the Temple Mount to pray and have done so for 45 years, block their access, physically prevent them from going in order to keep the site pacified. So when it erupts, it erupts because Palestinians choose to have it erupt. And when this action to clear things out in order to settle it down happened, Hamas figuring that it needed to show not only its solidarity, but that it was tougher than the Palestinian Authority, decided to start launching the rockets for the first time, really. I mean, there were there were uh, like 200 rockets fired in 2020. Uh, there were thousands of rockets fired in 2014 during the war, uh, the Gaza War, the last time there was actually like a really serious face-to-face confrontation between Israel and Hamas. Uh, 750 rockets were fired Monday and Tuesday. So this is what we are talking about. And so not only isn't there an equivalency, but we have the Casas Belli is internal Palestinian political strife with nothing to do with Israel, except to the extent that everything that happens has to do with Israel. And and to, to add to that, so domestically here and politically, there was a rally on Black Lives Matter Plaza in front of the White House yesterday, where one of the guest speakers was shock and awe, Rashida Tlaib. People were waving signs that had a picture of the Israeli flag equals a picture of the Nazi flag, all kinds of like horribly anti-Semitic rhetoric. Um, and, and that's, that's politically, there's a, there's an effort, uh, by the progressive left here in this country to capitalize on the same chaos and disorder among the Palestinians and to, and to demonize Israel because that suits their own constituency. We've talked about how the progressive squad has kind of glommed onto these uh, moments, but you do see more of the kind of permanent Black Lives Matter protester class in D.C. constantly joining up in these protests now, too. Some of it is very explicit, um, where you have people like your favorite, Christine, Representative Cori Bush, um, (laughs) making a very uh, explicit 
case that she's just declining to be discriminating in any way, shape, or form when she witnesses police responding to riotous violence in the streets. She says, I've been a victim of police violence too, so this must be the exact same thing. It's just sort of a uh, a dumb popular front mentality that declines to uh, discriminate or be discreet in any particular way. And that's presented as somehow virtuous when it is just boldly ignorant and, and aggressively ignorant. So in thinking about um, what, what Christine describes about um, uh, what Rashida Tlaib said and, and, and others, Democrats here, um, I feel as if uh, Democrats on this issue have painted themselves into such a corner that on Israel um, and um, have gone so out of the way to frankly protect the the anti-Semites among them um, and to blend their version of social justice with um, uh, uh, anti-Israel sentiment that it would now be virtually impossible for them, for the Democrats to speak in mass or even in any sort of representative um, influential block um, in unapologetic support of any defensive action that Israel will ever take. And that is a very scary and strange state of affairs for the U.S. I mean, I think you need to I think you need to sort of separate this out a little bit, which is I think that's absolutely true about the House and the Democrats in the House. I'm not sure you can say that about the, the Democrats in the Senate. And right now you can't really say about the Biden administration, but it is certainly the case with the Democrats in the House who, of course, had that moment in 2019 when Nancy Pelosi called the, the, the House uh, Democratic Conference together to, um, to issue some kind of a censure or something of Rashida Tlaib for talking about how Jews only like money. And, uh, and, there was a, and there was a revolt within the conference and made that impossible. Okay. Elon Omar, Elon Omar. Oh, excuse right. me, Elon Omar, I apologize. Um, yeah, it's not even all Democrats in the House. It's just a particular faction, a very vocal faction, an ascendant faction, but a, nevertheless a narrow faction that is, that is committed to what, what you have to say is principle at this point because it is not politically convenient. Um, but they're, but they're being but they're being defended. That's I think what, yeah. what Abe's point is that is that in 2019, given the choice to try to isolate that faction or to uh, allow it to remain the vanguard of the party, the rest of the House Democratic Caucus right. sided with the faction. So, but it's ahead. dumb in every possible way it can be dumb. Um, for example, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez lashed out at Andrew Yang, who is one of two mayoral candidates who issued very uh, unequivocal statements of support for Israel in this conflict, both of whom happened to be leading in the polls, just happened to be the progressive contingents who can't muster a word of support for Israel without languishing in single digits. Um, and she did so, you know, first of all, this is politically, obviously politically convenient for uh, Andrew Yang, but it's also uh, just a, a genuine understanding of the facts. But moreover, People like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Ilan Omar presume to speak for the Arab street when they say, you know, how dare you issue these statements during Eid, uh, during the, the festival that commemorates the beginning of Ramadan. Uh, it's so insensitive to, to Arab interests, to Muslim interests. Really? Because where are Arab interests and Muslim interests today? Are, the, are Arab states, do we hear condemnatory responses from governments in Riyadh and Amman and Rabat and Khartoum? No, no, we don't. And there's a reason for that. It's geopolitical, but it's also because the Arab world has moved on and the progressive left has not. They're stuck in the past. 
Yeah, so, uh, no, you're referring to Andrew Yang's statement. Uh, a couple of people uh, uh, in particular, yeah, the, the other guy who was, leading, who was sort of vying with Yang at the, at the top of the polls in the June primary that will essentially decide the next mayor of New York, that's Eric Adams, uh, a former, uh, uh, an anti-cop cop uh, who is now Brooklyn Borough President. Um, and Eric Adams has a has a problem as exposed uh, in the pages of our of uh, I think it's the it was either the Free Beacon or the Washington Examiner I'm sorry I don't remember which where they looked back and they saw that he basically was an apologist for Louis Farrakhan in the 1990s uh, and so he need he needed to uh, offer a cleansing. Uh, thing for himself, uh, Jews make up 12% of the population of New York City. That's down from 31% in 1950, by the way, when... when I mean, it's very parochial New York politics, but they're both right. lying for the Orthodox vote. This is the Brooklyn Borough yeah. president yeah. who has a very good relationship with, yeah. with the Orthodox but, community, yeah. but also but, they're, they're kind of sour on him as a result of that and some other things. Yeah. Nevertheless, both of them very went out of their way to make condemnatory yeah. statements against the people who were executing violent attacks on Israeli civilians. And they're the only ones. And there's a reason why they're doing yeah. so well in the polls. And it's partly because they just have contempt for these progressive pieties. Well, I don't know if they have contempt. They are, they have, they have decided to position themselves very cannily. There are, I don't know, 10 people running for mayor and seven of them are cannibalizing the progressive vote in New York City, and which, by the way, is not necessarily the largest vote. I mean, if there's a very, very small turnout, which there might be, the progressives have an oversized authority here. Uh, but remember, you know, I, I don't know, it's a five-to-one Democratic uh, city. And so, you know, most Democrats in New York City within the, are not woke left progressives. It just is a matter of course. And so... The weird thing is that the dynamic, a little like what happened with Joe Biden, is that, you know, like in, in the Democratic primaries, there was some point at which it was like, really, you're going to leave the center? Sort of like, you're going to leave the non-woke to one person? Except for, you know, I don't remember, like that guy Delaney, who was kind of running as a non-woke person. Like, But, you know, among the major candidates, they were all just sort of running to scoop up this one area of the base without realizing that Biden was just going to sail right into the nomination without it by, 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 by being not at. So that's what they're, that's where, where they're running. And, and yeah, Israel is a very good example of this because why don't they just shut up? What, what, what is Ale Why is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez opening her mouth about this? She knows nothing about it. It's a very complicated issue. Even if, you side with the Palestinians because event because in some ways, no matter how you slice it, if you're attacking the Israelis, you're essentially giving a pass to people who are firing rockets at children. Well, John, you identified in the mainstream press how some of this ideology is coloring commentary on this conflict in a pretty odious fashion. Well, I mean, I, I was struck last night by the by the coverage in the New York Times that not not your commentary, just the news story about what is going on with a a form of um, uh, you know, sort of equalization that is really really startling. Okay, so this is I think Isabel Kirshner, who is there uh, either Jerusalem, why, she's a longtime correspondent on Israel, 
While the surge and strikes the worst since 2014 brought fear to millions in Gaza and Israel, they nevertheless bolstered an unlikely pair. Hamas, the Islamist militant group that runs the Gaza Strip, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of, uh, of Israel. Because Bibi Netanyahu, of course, is, uh, you know... Israel... Oh, it goes on, it goes on. Quote, yeah. the distraction of the war and the diversions it creates between the disparate opposition parties currently negotiating a coalition to topple him from power have given him a chance of remaining in office just days after it seemed like he might finally be on the way out. Um, you know, okay. you don't have to be, you don't have to be, you know, a savvy media consumer to get the sly insinuation that if he didn't engineer the conflict, he at least welcomes the bloodletting. Right. So, I mean, aside from being uh, inaccurate, uh, a false depiction of what went on over the last two weeks and all of that, just to make this clear, there seems to be a general understanding or belief that Bibi Netanyahu is a fierce warmonger who likes nothing more than to attack, you know, Gaza. And in fact, he is in, he is a very phlegmatic prime minister and has been since 2009. Uh, you know, there, there could have been 40 wars started at any point, at any point Hamas fires a rocket anywhere you could say that's unacceptable one rocket is unacceptable we are going in right he in his political wisdom and geopolitical wisdom has decided that this is not the way to go and only when pushed to the brink like in 2014 have they actually engaged militarily and that is the question of this moment which is not is Israel going to go to all-out war? But are where are Bibi's instincts here? Are they going to be, you know, this is something that can be resolved without going to war, which is what he would want. By the way, including politically. Or are they going to be dragged into the war nonetheless? And I I Isabel Kirshner knows better, and a lot of people in Israel know better, but the hatred of Bibi, who, by the way, part of the, part of the interesting story here is that in the last two or three weeks, for the first time in Israeli political history, there was a real chance that Arab political parties were going to go into the government or at least be the cause of the possibility of a formation of the government after these four inconclusive elections uh, over the last two years. That this uh, uh, and 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 negotiations were underway. The Likud negotiated. That's Bibi's party negotiated with them. Couldn't come up with a deal. And the and the the people who had after Bibi lost his chance to form the new government after the fourth election, uh, Yair Lapid and and Naftali Bennett, who were in coalition together to form the next government as a possibility, all but had a deal worked out where they were going to get uh, to get this party at least not to vote against the government to vote not to join it but to sort of allow the government to proceed, which would have been very jury-rigged and wouldn't have lasted very long. But it would have been a watershed moment in Israeli political history where, where, the, where the Arab parties, instead of simply being sort of like bystanders, would have been not only participants, but kind of kingmakers in, in, in forming a government. And that is another possible reason why it was important for the Palestinian Authority to provoke this kind of conflict, to prevent this, what might be called a kind of domestic Abraham Accord 
to take place inside Israel. The, the previously unthinkable possibility both of Arabs going into the government from a Jewish perspective and from the Arab nationalist perspective to allow to become part of the good working order of, of, of Israeli democracy, that could have been the kind of thing that the Abraham Accords was and will now uh, will now not happen. Um, and you know what else uh, is gonna ha- is not gonna happen? I'm not gonna have a bad back anymore from my horrible desk chair because I don't have a horrible desk chair anymore. I have an X chair with its dynamic uh, variable lumbar support, which offers that unbelievable lumbar support to my lower back, and with its XHMT technology that provides heat and massage therapy right to my core, increasing blood flow, muscle recovery, energy. These are the perks that make working from the X chair a joy with its four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy when I'm sore. Instead of that horrible old chair, now I look forward to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference for yourself. Trust me, this is the luxury supercar of office chairs. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. I just want to uh, just want to uh, say one thing, which is, uh, I, I said, my sister Ruthie Bloom. If you want to look her up, uh, Ruthie Bloom writes for the Jewish News Service. Um, she's on uh, I twenty four Television. You can Google her. It's B L U M. You should be reading her. You should like follow her on Twitter and uh, uh, get her really uh, a remarkable perspective on 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 what is going on in Israel. Abe, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about uh, the point about distinguishing between the certain faction of the House Democrats and other Democrats on this issue. And um, I have to say, <clears throat> it, that may be, uh, there may be a difference holding things in place for now. Um, but what would happen if, um, as, as might occur, um, uh, there, an image arises, right, from, from Gaza, uh, real or fake, as these things sometimes are, of uh, a child of, uh, uh, in some rubble, something along those lines. Could could end up being from Syria as as those things happen, right? Um, but there's this there's this uh, sort of iconic image now that is seized upon that happens uh, often in these skirmishes or in these conflicts and these wars. Um, then w- w- will we see every Democrat uh, uh, p- part of the House faction, part of the House or not, um, come out and uh, say what? I think I think they will all. I, th- I think in, in such cases, um, they will all Democrats feel the pressure because of the situation they've put themselves in to uh, come out and condemn Israel. Okay, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm an apologist for the Democratic Party and its refusal and its refusal to confront the anti-Semitism in its elected ranks because uh, this is something that we have been talking about you know, in the magazine for a dozen years. I mean, I've been editor of commentary since 2009. This is a continuing subject of concern and controversy. 
dating back in the you know the the most dramatic moment that expressed this break with a democratic party tradition came in 2012 when uh, when the uh, when the resolution saying that Jerusalem was the capital of Israel was booed on the on the house floor and the person sitting in the chair had to overrule the clear intent of the convention delegates and say that the motion had passed when clearly it had failed. So that that is the grassroots of the Democratic Party saying that Jerusalem is not the capital of Israel. That was nine years ago. So I am I I I want to make it clear that this is a matter of consuming concern to me. I'm just saying that I, I have been struck over the last couple of days by the restraint that the Biden administration has shown in not going both sidesism Yet, I don't know that that'll hold. They have withheld a resolution from the floor of the General Assembly or in the Security Council. Uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has condemned without equivocation rocket attacks on civilians. All of this seems very like uh, building blocks normal. But, um, you know, things had gotten so bad between... Bibi and Obama in the last Democratic administration, that there was no telling where this was going to go. Again, you know, we're at the beginning of something, not at the end of it, I fear. And so whether or not there's going to be any resolute continuing understanding, I, I just think, as I say, maybe this is just my own delusion because obviously media stuff, celebrities going on, you know, Instagram to you know, talk about how terrible it is that the Israelis are behaving this way. Trevor Noah on The Daily Show doing some story about how this is all because Israeli cops went and beat up Palestinians, that kind of stuff. Maybe I'm like being a Pollyanna. We got an email yesterday from a listener who said, I'm wrong. Things are terrible in the way this is being covered. It just doesn't have, in my estimation, it doesn't have the virulence that the uh, because it's rockets because rockets are being fired at cities and blowing up buses and stuff like that, it just has a slightly different quality from from other sorts of uprisings, which at least involve people on the ground confronting other people on the ground. Okay, but remember that the so it's not just our local, it's not just national media here, it's global media are doing things and relentlessly doing this and then it's spread even more on social media. They're saying, they're reporting things like nine children died in Gaza and they show the rubble of a building. Well, a lot of those children died because the rockets that Hamas was firing fell short of their target and killed their own people. This we all know this. This is and but the but the media takes its numbers from the Gaza Health Ministry. Right. There's no context given for any of these conflicts. So Trevor Noah can sit there and lecture his his credulous listeners because first of all, very few of them were some of them probably weren't even you know sentient uh, people before 2005. They they don't even know the history of the region. They don't know that Israel withdrew from a region to give to to as a, as a peacemaking effort, which was then immediately responded to by more terrorist threats. So I think that the, I do think the media narrative, and, and as Abe said earlier, the pictures of like dying children, people only see the image. They believe what's told, which is kids die in Gaza. They assume it's because Israel struck. And in fact, a lot of those kids died at the hand of Hamas, but that isn't out there. And, and so I do, I, that over time starts to, that's where the equivalents come in. So even if they're upset about a bus being blown up in Israel, they then say, well, yeah, but look at all these dead kids in Gaza. So they go, it goes right. back and forth. 
You know, the, one of the interesting things that people have say when they're being really, you know, uh, like a, a boneheadedly stupid and morally equivalent is they say things like, well, it's really terrible that Gaza doesn't have an iron dome like Israel. Like Israel has this missile defense system and it can strike and it can destroy these missiles. Where's the iron dome for Gaza? And as Yair Rosenberg, who writes for Tablet, said, there is an Iron Dome for Gaza. It's called Don't Fire Rockets at Israel. <laughs> uh, like, that's one the, of the Iron people Dome who, for Gaza. One of the people who said that was Elon Omar. It was like, there's no Iron Dome for, Go- for Gaza or because, you know, and, and look at this. You know, Israel is engaged in terrorism. As a result, there should be some sort of a protective instinct and impulse there. And her and her co-partisans sought to defund American monetary support for the Iron Dome. So it's just, it is disingenuous up and down. I mean, they don't actually mean it. They're just grasping for whatever logic they can to justify their pre-existing anti-Semitic attacks on Israel. Right. So, Which um, needs to be emphasized more than it is, right. frankly. So uh, apparently right around now, I don't know, as we're taping, I don't know when it's going to happen, uh, Liz Cheney the number three ranking Republican. Oh, it's already happened. Oh, it has happened? Okay, yeah. so Liz Cheney has been ousted. By a voice vote. By a voice vote. They, um, couldn't even, they wouldn't even allow anybody to put their names on the record. And apparently, it was a closed-door meeting, but according to Lisa Desjardins at, uh, at uh, PBS, she was, uh, she was as she was voted out and walked out of the House, she was met with a standing ovation from the conference that had just voted her out of leadership. Uh, okay, so let, let's let let let's unpack this because she gave a pretty powerful speech last night, and and um, uh, uh, what's interesting here is that this is not you know this is not a job of uh, in the way that other jobs are, right? It, like she's she's part of a club of two hundred and eleven, two hundred and twelve people who pick who gets to sort of be their managers. And for whatever reason, if they decide they don't like this person being their manager, it's like, you know, we don't want her to be, you know, the secretary of the club. They can they can pick somebody else, right, to be the secretary of the club. Um, and in that sense, it doesn't have any wider resonance except as a mark or a sign about um, the insistence of uh, both leaders and grassroots and 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 politicians in the Republican Party uh, that um, uh, condemnations of Donald Trump and particularly Donald Trump's behavior on around and after uh, January sixth and before um, in in the aftermath of the election uh, are are to be deemed um, unacceptable as expressions of a leadership position in in Republican party politics. Would that, that, would that be a fair, I think. That's a very charitable. Okay, good. Uh, so what's the left? Okay, so give me. the Turing test there. Go ahead. So what's the uncharitable? I mean, the uncharitable explanation is that, you know, Republicans say, ah, you know, she doesn't represent the conference. Of course she does. All of them agree. All of them understand exactly what she's saying and agree off the record on background. You, it's not hard to find hundreds of media reports citing uh, people in Congress and their staffers who say, look, we all, we all understand what, what Liz Cheney is coming from. It just makes it really difficult to fundraise off these people when you tell them that they're idiots who are authoritarians or supporting authoritarianism. That's it. It's just instrumental, purely instrumental. They don't hate Liz Cheney. They hate the fact that she's making their lives more difficult 
insofar as the short-term objective here is to keep the party together for as long as it possibly can be kept together in order to get to the midterm cycle. Meet your fundraising goals, get through the midterm cycle as a generic opposition, not an ideological vehicle. And Liz Cheney is making that very difficult. And she has promised to continue to make that very difficult. I know a lot of people who fancy themselves really savvy analysts think that you know, nobody really cares about internal GOP machinations, the leadership fights within it. They don't care. Consumer prices are rising. There's wars in the Middle East. There's a bunch of problems closer to home. We should be focusing on that, right? I don't know, because if Liz Cheney does, as she has pledged to do after this thing, she gave a little speech where she said, I'm going to do everything within my power to ensure that the former president never again gets anywhere near the Oval Office. Look, this is a very good story. It's an attractive story. Here's a woman standing on principle, wager it all, lost it, and continues to, to wage this fight on principle. Americans like a good story, and this is an underdog story. And it's one that is powerful and presents a strong contrast to the cravenness of her co-partisans. I wouldn't dismiss the power of that example so casually. And I and I agree. I mean, I think that there's... Um... I, I used to tease my liberal friends after Hillary Clinton lost because they were they they just couldn't let it go and 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 they were like but did she really lose maybe the election was rigged you know they had all these theories about them like you guys are really bad your side's always been very bad at 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 with its losers like it coddles them it tells them no you didn't really lose no it really was so unfair to you oh it was misogyny it was this it was that there's always excuse making. And, and, and I pointed out that on the Republican side, when someone loses, they shuffle off quietly and slightly embarrassed and nobody talks about them for a while. That was true of Dole. That was true of, you know, Romney. They Off they go quietly. We'll know more. Now we are just as bad with our losers. We're literally elevating a loser. Trump lost. He lost the election. He lost the Senate for Republicans. He is not a good political leader for this party. And yet they are insisting that he is. Why? Good for her for saying he's not. And one argument that she made on the floor of the House yesterday to to the audience of precisely one Republican in conference, uh, Representative Ken Buck of Colorado, good for him, um, was that, look, he's continuing to spread these lies and there will be more violence as a result. And that's a particularly powerful argument because the Republican conferences, when they talk off the record, they're very quick to dismiss the power of these fallacies. If anybody in your, in your life is a, is a dyed-in-the-wool Republican voter, a Trumpy voter who's been with this party over the last four years, they do not dismiss these conspiracy theories. Many of them lend credence to them or buy them wholeheartedly. They are powerful. They do exert a powerful hold over the Republican imagination, and they continue to and will continue to, and people who don't speak out against it are whistling past the graveyard. But... No, politically speaking, who um, is receptive to Liz Cheney's powerful, principled stories? I mean, probably everyone who doesn't vote Republican. Well, but the problem here is that Republican vote shares are shrinking. I mean, they can do very well in a midterm election, which is tough to model, could be hard to turn out. And Republican voters might benefit from, the, for, as I said, just the simple fact of their they're not going to be viewed as a governing party, but purely an expression of opposition to the party in power, which controls all the levers of government. And which is why, as John said the other day, it's important to make not an instrumental case against Donald Trump and Trumpism within the Republican Party, because they could win despite, not because of, but despite the fact that they're shedding all these votes in the suburbs. Nevertheless, the fact persists that Donald Trump remains a drag on the, on the Republican Party, and there will continue to be an argument over that and to present a powerful example 
of why that is wrong, why that is bad, an ideological case, a moral case. Look, I don't think this country needs two parties that are dedicated to protectionism, naked culture warring, and punishing your enemies using the levers of the state as a result. I mean, that's the sort of thing that in 2010 galvanized an opposition that was very explicitly dedicated to opposing tyranny. I mean, you go back and listen to some of the commentary in 2010 about how the Obama administration was leveraging agencies to punish its political enemies. That mobilized a coalition and opposition that we haven't seen since. It still can. Okay, so uh, there are a lot of interesting strands here. Let me just give you one. So Liz Cheney, of course, uh, was won 165 to 60, something like that, when there was an open vote right after um, January 6th. So it's now five months later, right? Is it four months later or five months later? I think it's five months later. And she, my, my math again, my math genius again. Um, and here she loses by a voice vote. So the line is, she won't let it go. We need to focus on the future. She's focused on the past. This is a very interesting uh, inversion of the truth. Because of course, it is Trump who is focused on the past. And it is Trump who is forcing the Republican Party to remain focused on the past. That's why there are lunatics sitting in a in a in a stadium arena in Arizona looking for bamboo in 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 ballots uh, after lunatics in the Arizona State Senate voted to have a fourth recount of votes that had already been recounted in Maricopa County, because Trump won't let it go. It is Trump that insists on this fealty, and it is it is it is the view, the considered view of the party, having looked at the order of battle, that it is more dangerous for them to have Trump disgruntled than Trump appeased. And we look at this and we say, oh my God, Trump caused the Senate to go Democratic effectively, right? 50-50 by withdrawing his affect from the race in Georgia, the runoffs in Georgia, by having 100,000 Republicans stay home because they believed that the election had been stolen in Georgia and therefore they weren't going to participate in the runoff, and Warnock and Ossoff won, and, and the Democrats now control the Senate and have now spent at least $3 trillion that would not have been spent otherwise probably uh, or two trillion that that would have been spent in other ways or much less had had things gone another way. We look at this and say, what is the matter with these elected Republicans? Like this is nuts. Trump lost the House, he lost the Senate, he lost the presidency. He's toxic. That's nuts. But if you're Kevin McCarthy, you look at this and you say, if Trump pulls his favor from us and convinces people in 2022 to stay home, I'm not going to be the Speaker of the House come November 2022. We need him to be nice to us because we've already seen the calamity that can befall our party if he decides to take his jacks and, and ball and go home instead of playing jacks with us in the playground. And I, I don't actually know what the political answer to that is because they got a point, obviously, 
but they but are, do they? Yeah. But do, this is where I don't okay. think they are actually strategically uh, playing the tape forward far enough because that could be true. That was true in Georgia because it was a single thing that Trump could focus on, and he was very aggrieved, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But now uh, he actually doesn't have the discipline politically to to, to target individual races. And to, I mean, he'll throw an endorsement here, an endorsement there. You know, someone wins. He'll be like, oh, yeah, I like that guy. I did like that guy. I told you I like that guy. I'm not sure that he has the power that they're granting him a power that if they just withdrew, it's not clear that he would have the discipline to actually exercise. What's he going to do if the Republican Party just ignores him? What's he going to do? Negative. It's going to crash weddings. (laughs) No, let's not talk about him as a positive force. I'm talking about the idea that they need to neutralize him as a negative force. But cozying what do up they to know? him, how do, yeah. what but do cozying they up to him doesn't neutralize him, does it? No, they don't want to neutralize him. They want to prevent him from being a negative force. What do they know about him as a negative force? They are politicians. They know what happens to other politicians. They know Jeff Flake was ruined. They know Bob Corker was ruined. They know who I'm there are a couple of other. He wasn't a loser then. He's a loser now. Ah, okay. So this is the interesting wrinkle, right? So when Henry II, mad because Thomas a Becket excommunicates certain bishops in the, you know, in the Catholic Church in England uh for um turning a blind eye to Henry's sybaritic behavior. Henry says, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? And then somebody goes around and kills Thomas a Becket in the cathedral, making him a martyr, right? But at least Henry II was king. I mean, I think that's the point that you're making. Trump is not king. But the weird thing is that nobody is king. When a party is out of power, nobody is king. And no one has ever tried to do what he is trying to do which is maintain his hold on the party. And he does this with a plot line, a storyline that contradicts our storyline. Because his storyline is, I didn't win. I didn't lose. I won. They stole it. It doesn't matter how. There are 10,000 different explanations. They stole it. And at best, if they won it, they only won it by 44,000 votes anyway. I am still the king. You know what? I'm was why I so bad at the party. Republicans gained 15 seats in the House. What are you talking about? I'm not so bad for the party. Sorry. And he is. I mean, all that there. would that would be that would make sense as a as a logic <laughs> if Republicans, almost to a man, hadn't articulated something very different in the wake of January 6th. There was there was a moral weight on a yeah. lot of these people. And then it and turned specifically out specifically people like Lindsey Graham. Yeah, for whom and then what association with Republican with Donald Trump was anathema, only for him to turn around and 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 cravenly out of cowardice, out of fear by his own. I mean, the, the quiver in his voice is the tell that I, we can't we can't do this for fear of electoral consequences. Okay, so this is their business. This is like one of those things where it's like, don't tell a shoe salesman how to sell shoes. We're sitting here saying you're making a mistake. These guys are elected politicians. One thing they know about is how elections are won. And they're putting their finger in the air. Kevin McCarthy said what Trump did is anathema. All these people said this and that and the other thing. And they got the message, not just from Trump. They got the message from Republican voters, the Republican base, the Republican media, 
that they had gone in the wrong direction. But that's Christine's point. Christine's point is that, sure, they're making, and I, I can concede that they're making a calculation ahead of 2022, which is that they will win entropically. And anything that disrupts that that ent- entropic course is bad politics. But fast forward to 2024, at which that's point not- the, the pro-Trump wing takes credit for this thing, a Republican president who maintained the worst job approval ratings in history who cost them two chambers, who is extremely unpopular, will remain will become ascendant again. They know something in their marrow. Because it's how they continue to do their jobs. They could be wrong. Yeah, it assumes a lot of competence. No, I'm not even talking about competence. It could be simply the phones are ringing off the hook. Everybody is mad at you, right? Or Oh man, talk radio is really pissed that you're not siding with Trump. Or you know, we got ten thousand letters saying, emails saying, you know, you 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 know, I I I'll never vote for you again if you behave this way. Whatever, they're responding to incentives that they have. That's we're saying. You know what, Republican, the Republican base will vote Republican, and what they need to do is, you know, look across the, do the kinds of things they need to do to make a big tent. We said that from 2016 onward, and we were right, and they were wrong. They lost the House, and they lost the presidency, right? We were right. Well, they lost the Senate in a more complicated way, but they lost the House, and they lost lost the, the presidency, because we said Trump needs a bigger tent, and he's not getting it. He is polarizing people and losing people instead of getting people. Okay, so we were right. And now they're looking at this and saying, and we could even lose the people we have. Because that's what happened in Georgia. We had these people and they stayed home. They voted in 20, they voted in November and they didn't vote in the runoff when the Senate was at stake. And we are scared to death of our voters. We are scared to, and what can we say? That so they're, they're in a hostage crisis. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, then they're not it. leaders and they should lose. <laughs> How is that inconsistent in any way with a diagnosis of cowardice? I, I'm not. I, I'm not disagreeing that they're cowardly. It also, but is- I'm saying, but cow, or or you could say their cowardice is prudent. That's what I'm saying. We're saying it's misguided, and yeah, maybe it's misguided. But I, I don't know when an entire party uh, watches an insurrection uh, that desert that had the guy who led who who was largely responsible for the insurrection impeached, and then they deservedly so, and should have been removed from office, which was made impossible by the bizarre behavior of the Democrats who didn't weren't in a position to schedule a vote or something like that. Anyway, my point is, they watched it, they hid under desks, they were calling for reinforcements to help them, and and it only took a couple of weeks for them all to turn tail and you know and and rewrite their own experiences and say not only wasn't it so bad but it was even kind of ah whatever or you know what i mean there's passions here whatever it is whatever whatever game that they were playing which says it is trump's party the republican party is not the republican party that it was it has a king the king they believe was unfairly deposed and they're looking for a restoration and that is why i say there is no chance on earth that trump is not running again in 2024 why wouldn't he run again in 2024 what is to prevent him what 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 force you know what force will prevent him from running He's going to have people begging him to run. He's going to have tens of millions of people saying he should run. Why wouldn't he run? Someone tell me why. Particularly if Biden screws up 
and Kamala and has to stop. And then Kamala Harris, who is a terrible politician, ends up somehow by default becoming the person who is running for office. You think Trump can't beat Kamala Harris? Sure he can. I mean, he can beat Kamala Harris. It'll be four years of Biden, and he could be Kamala Harris. I'm just saying, like, you well, know. Well, here's, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take the bait. Here's, here's one way in which he can't win if he runs in 2024. Because if we have had uh, two more years of the, or three years, of the kind of cultural disarray, gas lines, stagflation, inflation, whatever you want to call it, if we have what isn't our build back better, but a kind of massive federal spending that has caused, you know, a, a lot of problems, which we've been talking about for the last few weeks on this podcast, if that continues, and then and you have a summer of you know homicide spikes in all the major cities again or any riots or whatever if that continues people are going to be faced with the choice of the chaos and disorder that the Biden administration oversaw versus the known chaos agent of Donald Trump and i am not so sure that's a choice a lot of people want to make you could have someone challenge him for that not because i just think if you have a trump DeSantis type person if he's if he's if there's a primary i'm not there will be a primary of course there will be a primary and it'll be a viciously fought primary and the notion here that kamala harris has precisely the same baggage as somebody like hillary clinton who was a fixture in american politics for three decades before she ran for the presidency and was one of the least liked people on earth i struggle i struggle with that one it's possible anything's possible But the notion that Kamala Harris would be the rough equivalent to Hillary Clinton, who remains the only figure Donald Trump has ever beaten a head-to-head election, I I don't know if that's such a sure bet. Okay. He'll he'll be old, too. He's going to be old. He is the most consistently disliked person in American politics. You know what? So what? You know what he runs on? Told (laughs) you. That's it. That's but see, that this is where I have more. I, I, as a result of his record job. Yeah, do I have more faith know. in the American people. I told you so. Yeah, is you not do? enough. I do. Oh, really? He didn't lose as a result of his record. He lost as a result of the fact that people find him abrasive. I know. Well, he's going to still told. be very abrasive. But, but that's he. That's what he won on in twenty sixteen as well. He had no record. Yeah, I'm just saying. And don't don't you? I would like to agree with you. <laughs> But I don't. <laughs> that is my problem. Everything in me wants to agree with you. Uh, you tried I, very hard to talk yourself out of your own instincts in 2022. What do you mean? You tried very hard to talk yourself into the case for why Donald Trump was a resonant political figure who could beat the odds. And your instincts were right. Trust your instincts. I don't have those instincts. My instincts say I'm watching what happened over the last five months and I'm watching Trump's behavior and I'm saying... He's going to run again in 2024, and the Republican Party that just made sure that Liz Cheney was defenestrated isn't going to be a different place in 2024. Yeah, there's a reason why you try to keep people pissing inside the tent, for lack of a better term. Okay, well, we'll see. And you know what? This is all going to drive a person crazy, and that's why you might want to take up Headspace, your daily dose of mindfulness, in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed? Headspace is a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by and for parents. Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. 
and it's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary. Now, uh, we've had some uh, starts and stops as we're taping this, so I have no idea where we are in terms of time. Uh, But, you know, talking about whether uh, Biden is going to be a right target in 2022 and 2024, um, uh, we have an interesting example of the kinds of things that could have an effect on a presidency that the president doesn't necessarily have any control over. And that is this uh, pipeline cyber attack that has been limiting uh, gasoline supplies to the east coast of the United States, causing uh, gas lines. A friend of mine, or another podcast uh, guest, uh, Daniel Cass, who lives in Asheville, uh, North Carolina, figured out yesterday he needed to get to the gas station at 6.30 in the morning. He got there. He got his gas filled up. When he went back near the back gas station at three, there was a line half a mile long. And at six o'clock, there was a police barricade in front of the gas station. Um, people are, you know, f- are panicking. They're filling up, you know, this is 1979 all over again. It could be very short lived, but, um, you know, Biden didn't stage a cyber attack, but this is the kind of thing that happens that a president can be blamed for. And of course, what happens the day that this happens? Jennifer Granholm, the Secretary of Energy, announces that we are going to be making sure that gas station owners don't price gouge. They don't gr- price gouge at a time of scarcity. You want price gouging in this sense, which is that um, uh, if, it, if it's a point at which someone, you know, it, it, there's a limited supply of gas, how are you going to distribute it? Like, maybe people who can't pay for it at the price that it is reached naturally will figure out other ways to manage and the people who can pay for it will buy it and that helps reduce demand, not increase demand. If you say you're going to make sure that the price remains low, you are going to have no one getting gas. Anyway. But, you, but, but wait, but you know what was so telling about how she chose to talk about this? And this tells you everything about the difference between uh, liberals who love to spend and conservatives who are a little more concerned with fiscal responsibility. She's talked about it as a, as a uh, uh, not as a gas shortage, which nobody wants to hear, but she called it a supply crunch, right? So it's all about how can we supply to everyone everything they want all the time at no cost. So it's the right. supply crunch. My dad in Tallahassee that reported long lines at the gas stations at the Costco there. I mean, this isn't, this is all up and down the East Coast. We're getting report reports of shortages, but like the border crisis, we're not allowed to use those words because those use, those words are very judgmental to the Biden administration. So we must not use those words. Let's call it a crunch, not a shortage. Well, talking about, talking about the, uh, helping the Biden administration. So we were all, everybody I think was agog yesterday at this tweet from the New York Times that said, this is going on so far, there are no gas lines anywhere. While there were gas lines everywhere, so the New York Times didn't exactly correct the tweet, but it came. It published a story this morning about the gas lines everywhere and panic gas buying everywhere. But it, it's odd because obviously whoever wrote the tweet had this weird des- desire to create some defensive structure around the obvious political problem uh, presented by looming gas shortages and gas lines. So this is, uh, and the whole point here is that uh, things happen that are beyond a president's control, 
that can have weird effects on them. Um, my, you know, one classic example was the Deepwater Horizon leak in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, which somehow ended up being part of Obama's summer of hell, even though Obama had nothing to do with it, uh, that led to the shellacking of, of, of 2010. And, you know, presidents get blamed for things that they are not responsible for, like a virus, uh, shall we say, like Trump blamed for the existence of a virus um, uh, and and and, ha- and have to deal with the consequences. And, you know, if Biden doesn't uh, address this, which, you know, as long as it doesn't like really expand, but also doesn't come out with some kind of a plan to make sure that this doesn't happen time and again, who knows? But, I, you know, this strikes me as um, the opposite of Obama in the Deepwater Horizon in that Obama had nothing to do with the Deepwater Horizon um, uh, pipe breaking. Um, and I don't even think it was um, this, the, the, it, it, it was a, you know, ecological travesty, of course, but it didn't, it didn't rise to the level of this sort of national um, horror that, that, that it was that people um, made out of it. And, and he did get blamed for it. Um, whereas with Biden, I see sort of crisis after crisis uh, here on the horizon and um he's not he's really no one is taking him to task for it i mean there's the there's the the cybersecurity issue here and there's the energy and there's there's the um the the um uh 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 inflation there's the border crisis which is ongoing um and you know he's he's far from being blamed for things that are are beyond his control He's he's getting nothing but covered. No, but it's voters who are going to blame him. I'm not talking about pundits and stuff like that. You can always see little bits and pieces of things, like Mark Kelly, the new senator from newly minted senator from Arizona, attacking him on the border. Right? I mean, there are there are signs and emanations. And if things get bad with inflation, it's not that they're going to blame him. It's not that. It's just that the country is going to be in a mood that says what the hell is happening here whoever has their hand on the tiller doesn't isn't controlling things properly which is also one of the reasons that Trump lost in 2020 is that is that he had an inconstant hand on the tiller during the coronavirus crisis well and this is this is the point at which what was a strength we've talked about this but this we might be reaching that moment where the 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 thing that was such a strength for Biden, which is just not being in America's face much during the election and just like staying staying uh, opaque, is really going to harm him because people actually want an answer. And when the only answer is to send out a cabinet member to kind of talk in Orwellian terms about something that we all know to be the case, that's not a good message either. That makes people unsettled, even if they like Biden and they like what the Democrats are doing. It's unsettling if you if the dear leader always seems a little confused and is obviously very carefully controlled and isn't really speaking honestly about what they see in front of them but abe you were looking uh... oh I, I, I to me i don't know that i don't know when or how biden is going to um be cast as as an unsteady hand on the tiller here because his situation reminds me more of um andrew cuomo's during the past year where everyone loved thinking of him as being a steady hand while in fact things in new york were terrible while he, while the job he was doing was demonstrably terrible and uh he just sort of got covered through throughout well it's an interesting example though andrew cuomo of course in personality terms is far more like trump than he is like biden and biden 
Biden, the the problem for Biden, you know, the sort of like the ticking time bomb for Biden is looking like he is a doddering old, out of touch, incompetent old man who isn't up to the job. And um, all, all these are seeds, like nothing has sprouted yet. And it is, we're only five months into the administration. So these are just seeds, but they have been planted. Now they may not flourish, but it's not like they haven't been planted. And with that, we will bid you a fair, fond farewell until tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.